Lecture 6, Introduction to Sophocles, Athenian Tragedy, and Antigone, slides 108 to 121. We are going to review the entire play today, and we are going to talk about some of the philosophical implications of this play in our next lecture. So, Sophocles is Antigone. Here's a nice picture right here showing Antigone above all, above all the men there, and that certainly is uh, one of the elements of this play. It was a tragedy. It was Greek, truly Athenian. Mo all Greek tragedy comes from Athens, so it should be called Athenian tragedy, Euripides. Aeschylus and Sophocles all competed in Athens, and it is 1,352 lines, so it is like a book and a half in length of uh, one of the Iliad chapters, one of the Iliad books. All right, let's talk about Antigone itself. Antigone is a tragedy by the ancient Greek, ancient Athenian playwright Sophocles. And recall something about Sophocles. The reason why I share Sophocles with you, besides the fact that the 4th century philosopher Aristotle considers one of his works, Oedipus the King, the perfect tragedy because of its anagnorisis, which is its recognition, and its peripatia, or turn of fate, happening in precisely the same moment, is because Sophocles was the most victorious of all Athenian playwrights. Not only did he win 20 times over his 50-year career, he never once got third place. Recall that it would always be uh, three tragedians who were competing for the glory. In fact, uh, uh, Euripides, who would become much more famous afterwards and actually has more extant plays than both Aeschylus and Sophocles combined. Both Aeschylus and Sophocles have seven plays still remaining. He, he was actually deeply unpopular in his very first time uh, he uh, competed. He got third place, and he only won four times uh, during the entirety of his career. And possibly the Bacchae, which I actually am very tempted to teach you this year, to take a week out and to teach it to you, uh, was probably probably won uh, after he died. So, very interesting. Uh, very interesting there. In any case, Antigone was written around 441 BCE. I see 441 and 442 often when I see this, uh, this play mentioned, which means that it was written before Sophocles' other Theban plays chronologically. Now, remember what I said to you earlier. Even though uh, these three plays, Oedipus the King, Oedipus at Colonus, and Antigone, are often in the same volume, and in fact called the Theban trilogy because... They take place in Thebes, except Oedipus at Colonus actually takes place at Colonus, which is near Athens, which is not Thebes. Um, uh, these are not truly a trilogy, and they were not performed at the same time, and they were never meant to be performed uh, in succession. There is only one extant trilogy that we have by Aeschylus, which is called the Oresteia, which uh, figures in the events of Orestes attempting to uh, avenge the death of his father Agamemnon. The Agamemnon, where Agamemnon is killed by Clytemnestra and Aegisthus, the Libation Bearers, where Orestes comes back and takes vengeance, and then the Eumenides, where he has to uh, Orestes has to stand trial for his uh, crime against his family, um, and to see whether the justice of the state supervenes over a crime against the family. And in that case, it almost doesn't, but it, it does in the end. In any case, if the dating of Antigone is correct, Sophocles wrote Oedipus the King some twelve years later. And Oedipus at Clonus, 23 years later still. So why is it the case that I talked to Oedipus the King before Antigone? Well, even though Oedipus the King was written after Antigone, the events inside of Oedipus the King take place before Antigone. In fact, so do the events at Oedipus at Clonus. That's where Oedipus dies um, and curses his two sons, Ateocles and Polynices. So... Where does the Antigone pick up? Well, Aeschylus wrote a play called The Seven Against Thebes, and that prefigures, or that figures, the war between Antiochus and Polynices for Thebes, where Diomedes' father, Tidius, fought 
and died alongside uh, six other uh, individuals. There's actually only one of the seven against thieves who ended up surviving, and his name has escaped me for some reason this moment. In any case, what is the basic premise of Antigone? Well, now both of her brothers are dead, and they are both lying on the ground outside of Thebes. Her uncle, Creon, who is now king, has declared that the man who attempted to defend Thebes, Ateocles, is to be buried with full honor. Her brother, Polynices, from whom Ateocles stole the throne, they were supposed to, uh, they were supposed to rule in um, uh, alternating years. Ateocles would rule one year. Polynices would rule the next year. Ateocles would rule the next year. Um, Ateocles decided to just continue to rule himself. And so Polynices acquired an army and came to fight against him. Because of this, Creon has declared him a traitor. And because he is a traitor, he is not allowed to be buried. And as you've seen in Homer, the underworld for um, the Greeks is not particularly pleasant. It's called the Fields of Asphodel. It's, it's just dark and gloomy, and the souls or shades are essentially uh, mindless and flittering about. Not the greatest place. Well, apparently, in the Athenian imagination, if you were not buried, you stayed in sort of a limbo state, which was even worse than that. And so to the idea that uh, Eteocles would not be buried would essentially mean that something terrible would happen to his soul for all eternity, which meant that that was one of the worst things that you could possibly uh, do to a person, especially after they died. And this just does not sit well with his sister Antigone. All right. Now, a couple things about Thebes, because you've been hearing about Thebes, and if you've ever uh, seen the Disney movie Hercules, you know that the first place he goes in order to uh, show his heroic prowess is Thebes. He actually is uh, from Thebes as well. Many Greek tragedies, besides even these, are set in Thebes. Not just Sophocles' three Theban plays, but many, both extant and lost, and we know this from commentaries on plays, uh, by Aeschylus and Euripides as well. So what does uh, Thebes represent in tragedy. And I took some of this evidence from Dr. Elizabeth Vandiver, uh, University of Maryland, and the Great Courses Professor. From a Zeitman has suggested that Thebes functions as an anti-Athens. Well, what does that mean? Well, Athens in the ancient world, especially the 5th and the 4th centuries, uh, was sort of a place uh, similar to Italy during the Renaissance. It was a place where the arts flourished and where civilization was really being born and reborn over and over again. The art of drama was invented there. Comedy and tragedy. Amazing. Uh, rhetoric, the ability to speak in front of people and to persuade their hearts and to argue both side, sides by sophists was invented. Incredible. As well, philosophy seems to have been born uh, in and around Athens. And certainly one of the greatest philosophers, Socrates and his student Plato, uh, came from Athens. And uh, Aristotle, who himself was not a native of Athens, did live there as well. And that's where he received his, uh, his training from Plato. And Aristotle's poetics, of course, is where we get the terms anagnagoras, or recognition, and peripatia, or turn of fate, which we were using to analyze Oedipus, and which we will in turn use to analyze uh, the Antigone as well. Uh, they also invented history, oddly enough. They had uh, uh, Herodotus and uh, uh, Thucydides there as well. Thucydides in particular, he was one of their generals. And so, um, Athens is a place of high culture. Thebes seems to be a place of um, uh, the opposite. Uh, Thebes in tragedy, is a city where resolution is impossible. Things just always go wrong in Thebes. That's why Heracles, Hercules, in the Disney movie, has a chance to go there because obviously things are going to go wrong. I mean, even the idea that there is a hydra in Thebes, the idea is that there, 
when you cut off the head of a hydra, what happens to the heads of the hydra? They reappear, meaning that the problems in Thebes are what? They're endless. And here, I will teach you something for the, uh, I, I wear glasses, um, uh, for those of you who like to push up your frames and say something annoying. Technically, the, the hydra that Hercules defeats as one of his 12 laborers has nine heads, but one of them is immortal. So sometimes students ask me, they're like, does the hydra have one head? Does it have two heads? How many heads does it start with? And according to uh, the library of Apollodorus, where we have um, stories about Hercules, it had nine heads originally, but one was immortal. So it's like you keep cutting off the mortal heads, but you had to kill one that just would never die. Um, I forget actually how he ends up killing killing that in reality. It may be some thing or something. I'll have to look it up for you. I'll tell you next time. In any case, the conflicts and impasses that characterize tragedy are pushed to their limits in Thebans stories. That means that uh, you get um, category or limit cases. The worst of the worst happens in Thebes, like... You kill your father and you lay with your mother, for example. Um, Antigone will be a good illustration of both civic and familial impasses. There will be conflicts between um, your relationship to the state and to family. Antigone's relationship to the state and family in this particular text. Alright, so let me give you a slightly more detailed background from what I started to do uh, two slides ago. The action of Antigone follows on from the Theban Civil War... That's the seven against Thebes that I've talked about, the war that happened before the Trojan War, where Tidius made his fame, the fame that Athena mentions to Diomedes in Book 5 when she is trying to um, push his spirit uh, to the limit so that he will fight against gods, Aphrodite and Ares in particular. And so two brothers, Antiochus and Polynices, and you'll see Polynices spelled in differing ways. Antiochus sometimes has a K in there if it's the Greek spelling. Polynices sometimes has an E before the I if, that, if it has the, uh, the Greek spelling. And uh, uh, ironically, Polynices' name means many victories. You see the word Nike in there, and poly, polygon, many-sided. In any case, uh, they died fighting each other for the throne of Thebes. They died by each other's hands at the seventh gate of Thebes. After Ateocles had refused to give up the crown to his brother, as their father Oedipus had prescribed, uh, each year they would switch rule. Creon now is the new ruler of Thebes, and has declared that Ateocles is to be buried with full honor, because he defended Thebes uh, against Polynices. But Polynices is to be disgraced by leaving his body unburied on the battlefield. Remember the first lines of the Iliad, to be the delicate feasting of dogs. Alright, the play itself. As the play begins, Antigone vows to bury her brother Polynices' body in defiance of Creon's edict. She asks her sister Ismene to help her. In a, a small ancient Greek note, this was obviously written in ancient Greek in ancient Athens in the 5th century. Um, uh, at first, when Antigone is speaking to Ismene, there is a, uh, they don't simply have uh, the singular and the plural in ancient Greek. They also have a third number, which is the dual for two people. Uh, sort of like how we have oxen, oxen. Oxen seems to be just two oxes uh, uh, yoked together. Um, well, at first, when Antigone is speaking to Ismene, she, she uses several duels to include her, as if they are one in some way, one family, one in resolution. But then as they start to argue, those duels fall off. As, as they tar start to separate in their minds, even their language indicates um, their, this separateness and this uh, separating between them. Hmm. And interesting. Uh, she asks Ismene to help her, but her sister Ismene refuses to help her. She seems to fear death. She is very similar to a character um, that we think was 
created actually by Sophocles, named Chrysothemis, and the Electra. Chrysothemis was one of the sisters of Orestes and Electra, one of the daughters of Agamemnon. We don't really hear about her except in Sophocles, so we think she was essentially an invention. But she sympathizes, but she advises obedience to the decree. In fact, she says many things like, what can we do? We are but women. What can we do in front of the laws of the state? And Antigone is in no way persuaded by this reasoning by her sister. She thinks uh, we can definitely go bury our brother, regardless of the edicts of our uncle, regardless of the edicts of our king. They happen to be one and the same. And so, like Electra, Antigone resolves to do what she must do alone. Now, Creon, with the support of elders, repeats his edict regarding the disposal of Polynices' body. Uh, but a fearful sentry enters to report that Antigone has in fact buried her brother's body. It's a, a convention that I haven't mentioned to you yet in uh, Greek tragedy used uh, in definitely these two plays and uh, many others is the so-called messenger speech. Many times the action of a play, because it would be hard to actually demonstrate it on the stage with just three characters and a chorus of 12 to 50 people, 12 by the time of Sophocles, um, it's hard to represent action on the stage. And so sometimes when um, uh, complex maneuvers occurred, they would be uh, reported by a messenger. This is, in its own way, I think, uh, sort of a messenger speech. We will hear a much bigger messenger speech at the end of the play that will report some major deaths. But in any case, this guard comes in. He's sort of comic relief. He's very funny when we watch this play itself. He'll be a bit annoying. He'll, he'll actually quite a bit annoy Creon with his wordplay. But he shows up. He's fearful, and he reports that a person has buried the body of Ateocles, and that person happens to be no person other than Antigone. Creon becomes furious at this willful disobedience. Recall that Creon is a fairly new king. It was only the moment that Ateocles and Polynices killed each other that he himself became king. So he finds himself in a sort of tenuous position as ruler in the same way that Oedipus did. Just like Oedipus, when he was ruler as tyrant, believed that he had no blood connection to the throne and that Creon potentially had a stronger claim to it because of his blood connection. Now Creon is a new leader and he has just laid down his first decree and his very first decree is being disobeyed and by nobody other than his own uh, uh, niece, his own family, Antigone. What would it mean for his rule if he allows this to go unpunished? What would it mean for his rule if he allows his own family to be unpunished? Uh, what does it mean that his family goes against his will? Does it mean that they do not uh, recognize his rulership as legitimate? And so does he have to react harshly, strongly against this? And does he have to act against his own human emotions? Because as king, he must be uh, insuperable. He must lay down decrees and he must follow them, uh, and all must follow them, regardless of what their relationship to him is, so long as they are his subjects. And yet, this one person close to his heart has, uh, has uh, 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 trampled on his new edict. And so what is he to do? And so I, I want you really to uh, not see Creon simply as the evil Jafar antagonist here, but to see him also as very much a human character who is doing his best to act rightly, and perhaps will make mistakes. Hmm. Uh, and that is what the word, which is often translated as tragic flaw, means. Hamartia, which will later become the Christian word for sin. It is a, an archery term, which means to miss the mark. And so hamartia is to make a mistake or an error in judgment. 
So it is not uh, quite as big uh, as a tragic flaw of character so much as a, a misreading of a situation. And apparently, uh, it takes much less, actually, to lead to tragedy than you might think. You don't need to have a perennial character, character flaw. You can just uh, make an error of judgment, and tragedy can occur, which uh, is why I say don't text and drive in any case. Antigone is questioned over her actions, and she does not deny what she has done. She argues unflinchingly with Creon about the morality of his edict and the morality of her deeds. We'll talk about this soon, but she will make the claim that uh, uh, he will say, well, didn't you know that this law came from a king? And she'll say, yes, but it was only a human law. And human laws do not supervene over the laws of the gods. The laws of the gods indicate that a man should be buried when he dies, especially by his family. And so your law was therefore unjust because it was a human law going against the gods' law, and the gods' law in that case went. And that, that is her perspective. And perhaps she is correct. But despite her, uh, and despite her innocence, Ismene is also summoned and interrogated. And she tries to confess falsely to the crime, wishing to die alongside her sister. Or perhaps to show some, show some bravery or integrity or character. And yet Antigone says, no, she had no part in this. Do not kill her. And it, it's sort of interesting there because perhaps she does not want Ismene to be included in what she did because she considers what she did noble and just. And Ismene simply did not do the work that she did. Ismene did not put herself out there. Ismene is very much a secondary character in that way. She's very much passive. What, what has she done? What has she contributed to the story? She's sort of a foil off which to uh, analyze Antigone, who is a very dynamic character. It actually makes quite a bit of sense uh, uh, watching her in the 20th, 20th and the 21st century. In any case, Creon's son, Hymon, he is betrothed to Antigone. That means he is the fiancé of Antigone. They are supposed to get married. And so this is an additional wrinkle. Is Creon to punish his soon-to-be daughter-in-law if he punishes her, if he uh, comes up with something to do to her because she has um, um, obviated or gone against his edict, will he simply be punishing her, or will he also be punishing his son, and by proxy himself? I mean, if he punishes the soon-to-be wife and potentially mother of his grandson, is that really in his best interest? And it, as a king, is he expected to do that sort of thing, to act against his own best interest and his family's best interest for the best interest of the state? A big-time question there. So, Creon's son, who is betrothed to Antigone, pledges allegiance to his father's will. He says, I'll do whatever you say, father, when they first interact on the stage. But then, slowly, gently, he tries to persuade his father to spare Antigone. The two men are soon bitterly insulting each other, and eventually Hymen storms out, vowing never to see Creon again. Now, Creon then decides to spare Ismene, because Ismene has done nothing. But he decides that Antigone should be buried alive in a cave as a punishment for her transgressions. This is a terrible sort of punishment. To be buried alive is uh, many people's greatest fear. And uh, in fact, um, there was an old practice, I, I believe it was in America, definitely in Europe, that you would put a, a bell at a gravestone and there would be a string going down into the coffin just in case the person woke up from their deep sleep death and uh, found that they had been buried so they could ring that bell. And so, something else to consider while I say this is that um, the dead and the living have been inverted here. The dead are supposed to be put under the ground, and Antiochus is left above the ground. 
even though Antigone has sprinkled dirt on him, so he's technically been buried. The living are not supposed to be underground. Um, and so there is sort of an inversion here. There is uh, perhaps grounds for um, interpreting this as Creon being incorrect, leaving the dead above ground, putting the living above, below ground. Perhaps he is acting against the laws of the god, gods. The living be uh, around and in the open, and the dead not. Uh, how many dead people did you see today? Probably zero. Uh, she is brought out of the house, Antigone, bewailing her fate. But she still vigorously defends her actions. She is then taken away to her living tomb to expressions of great sorrow by the chorus. They are the ones who first make this point about the living acting as the dead and the dead as the living. And so, we have summoned to us, and this is the third time we have seen him in literature this year, the blind prophet Tyre, Rhesius. So we saw him back in the Odyssey in Book 11, and he told us some truths with his blind eyes. We saw him in Oedipus, and he definitely told us some truths that he did not want to tell us there, that Oedipus had lain with his mother and killed his father, and that his actions had polluted the city. He said that in anger, and so Oedipus discarded what he said, but he was certainly correct. So probably he will tell us something here that is, again, absolutely correct with his blind eyes. And so he warns Creon that the gods side with Antigone, suggesting that she is correct when she says that the gods' laws have been um, acted against by Creon, and so uh, it was right for her to follow the gods rather than Creon, who happens to be her, uh, you know, the leading man in her family, as well as the leading man in her uh, uh, city at this point. Creon, according to Tiresias, who has not yet been wrong, will lose a child for his crimes, of leaving Polynices unburied, for punishing Antigone so harshly. Apparently this punishment uh, by this new leader, by this new king who doesn't yet have his feet uh, on the ground is far too harsh. And people will turn against it. The chorus will turn against it. The gods have even turned against it. This means that nobody is on Creon's side, which perhaps would persuade one that uh, they could be wrong if nobody agrees with them, including the gods and their prophets. Tiresias warns that all of Greece will despise him. Again, this is a significant evidence that he is in the wrong. And that sacrificial offerings of Thebes will not be accepted by the gods. Powerful stuff from a man who has never yet been wrong in, and who was in fact summoned in order to tell the truth. And yet Creon, at first, merely dismisses him as a corrupt old fool. I include that word, corrupt. Because recall that that's precisely what Oedipus had called Tiresias corrupt. That he had suggested that uh, when Tiresias did not tell him what he wanted to hear, that he had colluded with Creon in order to give Creon the throne and um, Tiresias some, some sort of reward. And so we're starting to see now that sometimes when somebody tells you a truth you do not want to hear, uh, perhaps you do not, you reject it because your hope when you ask for the truth is that you hear a good or pleasant truth, of course. And yet sometimes the truth, I mean, perhaps often the truth, is not exactly what you want to hear, but uh, more what you need to hear. In any case, the terrified chorus begs Creon to reconsider. And eventually, under the weight of Tiresias, the gods, Antigone, the chorus, and all of Greece, he finally changes his will. He eventually consents to follow their advice and to free Antigone and to bury Polynices. So wonderful. It sounds like this is going to be wrapped up in a very nice way. And perhaps it will end with a marriage between Hymon and Antigone. And perhaps it will actually be a comedy where at first we thought it was a tragedy. And yet we know that this is the tragic stage 
this was performed in the city Dionysia. And so, uh, um, so this will likely not work out very well. In any case, Creon, shaken now by the prophet's warnings and by the implications of his own actions, is contrite and looks to right his previous mistakes. He hustles, he tries, and yet we will hear from a messenger in a very famous messenger speech that all has come to naught. A messenger then enters to report. This is the messenger speech of this play. Recall that the messenger speech in Oedipus uh, reported to us about the death of Jocasta, and then Oedipus taking the golden brooches from her dress and stabbing his eyes out. An interesting interpretation of that moment that I heard from, uh, again, Dr. Elizabeth Vandiver, that I think is great or fantastic, is that when Oedipus took those brooches off of the, the uh, dress of um, his mother wife, Jocasta, it bared her breasts in front of him. And him then seeing that symbol of her motherhood uh, drove him crazy because obviously he had become her husband. And that, that that was the sight that made it so that he never wanted to see another sight. And so he blinded himself because of that. I, I find that very persuasive as a, as a way of um, interpreting that scene. In any case, what does the messenger tell us? He tells us some tragic things. In their desperation, both Hymon and Antigone have taken their own lives. The line of Creon is now done. Uh, something I did not mention is that he actually had had a second son, who was his first son, his most beloved, and that, that son had actually died in the war. And so now this is his second son, the only other son we know him to have in this moment. And uh, he has lost him as well. He has lost also the daughter-in-law that he's going to have. He has lost his chance at, a grand, at grandchildren. Um, he has, um, in a way, lost everything, even though he has gained everything. He is king, highest-ranking person in Thebes, and yet, where is his family? Uh, and uh, there's actually more to say, too. Creon's wife, Eurydice, different from Orpheus's wife, Eurydice, the one that got bitten by a snake and died and went down to the underworld and was supposed to follow Orpheus out, but he looked too soon, and then she goes back down to the underworld. Well, she is so distraught with grief over the loss of her sons that she then flees the scene. And uh, often when ladies flee the scene in Sophocles, we know what is soon going to happen to them. Just think of Jocasta. In any case... Creon himself begins to understand that his own actions have caused these events. Again, is this fate? Is this free will? Um, it, it seems that he seen, sees that it was him that has made this. And so a second messenger then brings the news that Eurydice has also killed herself. So the situation was this. Uh, Hymon rushed out from um, Thebes to find the cave in which Antigone was uh, being buried alive. He gets into that cave, and he finds that she has already hanged herself. He then draws his sword. Creon shows up right behind him. They're just after the nick of time. Hymen swings at his father, wishes that he had died, and then stabs himself in front of his father and dies. <coughs> Eurydice then hears this information from the first messenger, leaves the scene, and then goes and she kills herself. So now Creon is left utterly alone. His former brother-in-law, Oedipus, gone. His two nephews, Atecles and Polynices, gone. His two sons, gone. And now his future daughter-in-law, gone. All he's left with is Ismene. Ismene the coward who wouldn't even attempt to bury her uh, brother. And so, well, you know, I guess you get what you deserve in this case. In any case, with her last breath, uh, <laughs> also just to add to this, uh, Eurydice also cursed uh, Creon with her last breath. Yeah, I know. It's, really, it's like... Uh, this, this is, uh, you can see just how tragic this is and how powerful. Not only has he lost everybody, but even in the last moment of her life, the last person that he would want, uh, that he loses, uh, curses him. <laughs> it's like, oh man, Creon, 
Is there any more evidence that you messed up in your, uh, in your thinking? Could you have missed the mark anymore? Uh, possibly so, but this is how much he did. In any case, now Creon blames himself for everything that has happened. You see the recognition, the anagnagoras. Who has caused this? Have the gods caused this? Has Oedipus caused this? Has Antigone caused this? No, no, no. Has Tiresias caused this? No. Who has caused this? Creon has caused this. He has brought this on himself. Potentially like Oedipus also brought this on himself. It's almost like the actions you take in this world bring about the world uh, on which you act. Hmm. Any case, he now staggers away a broken man. The order and rule of law that he values so much has been protected, but in so being protected, Creon has acted against the gods, lost his child and his wife and his daughter-in-law and his future. All for it. Was it all for not? What was it all for? The chorus then closes the play with an attempt at consolation. And this is uh, this is very uh, cold comfort, is what we call this. When somebody says something to comfort you, but it really doesn't comfort you very much. Uh, uh, it'd be like saying, oh, I'm dying. And somebody comes up to you and says, oh, we all die. You're like, thanks. That, that doesn't help at all. They say, the gods punish the proud. Apparently Creon in some way was proud. Potentially just like Oedipus. Uh, potentially like any sort of king or new king. And, but punishment also brings wisdom. And so that does seem to be true. In fact, there, uh, the Eastern philosopher Confucius said that there are three ways to learn. And that the most bitter way of learning is by experience. And that does seem true. Having been punished many times in my own life uh, for my own intransigence at times. I can tell you that uh, experience certainly does bring wisdom. Punishment does bring uh, wisdom, because often what you're punished for, you do not do again, or you do only with good reason. And we will have analysis of this coming up next time I lecture.